Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another Venice episode. I'll cut right to the chase because I never know when a plane might fly overhead and, and ruin whatever we're saying. For this episode, I'm very happy to be rejoined. I guess the last time we did an episode might have actually been at The Last Venice, um, but I'm not sure. At any rate, I'm happy to welcome Christina Newland uh, to podcast. Hello. Hi, Nick. <laughs> How are you holding up? Okay. All right. Hard to complain. It's 80 degrees of heat and we're sitting in Venice. So, it, Yeah, it's, it's, we're, I guess we're about midway. This is midway now through the yeah, festival. Yeah. I thought we could just dive in and I've sort of been saving a couple of movies from early in the festival and I'm glad that we're able to talk about them. And one of them is the opening film, uh, The Power of the Dog, uh, the Jane Campion movie. Really, at least you know for me and I'm sure many people really highly anticipated since she hasn't had a feature film since Bright Star and you know Top of the Lake is excellent Um, but I also wanted to see a feature film so what did you make of uh, The Power of the Dog? To me it sort of feels like a film that you know 12 years later she's she's come to make a feature and she's made something that in in every brushstroke is what she wants to make Uh, which is why if there are any things in it that feel flawed to the extent that there are which I don't think there were many I'm very happy to forgive that and I'm also excited that it's kind of different territory for her because she's actually got you know male protagonist or protagonists and um, she's always sort of focused on women characters and I think it's probably the most interesting movie I've seen about masculinity in a really long time certainly contemporary uh, films and yeah, just absolutely kind of chewy and complex. And like, as you are leaving the cinema, but by the time you get to the cinema door, you're sort of like, oh, like it, it just keeps you kind of meditating on uh, where it goes. Yeah, I, I really agree about that, that it is a movie that kind of continues to like explode in your mind <laughs> in, in the hours afterwards. Maybe we could sketch out the plot a, a little. Um, I guess technically it's an adaptation of a book from 65, I want to say. So it's a Western novel set at the kind of, uh, in 1925 in Montana. Um, So the Western culture looms large over that environment and there's an element of that left, but you're definitely on the dying ebbs of that. You know, there's a, a line in the film Cumberbatch says about, you know, the real men were way back win or whatever Mm -hmm. so there's already nostalgia about the west in montana in 1925 but it focuses on two wealthy brothers who are very very different uh jesse plemons who is sort of quiet and stolid and benedict cumberbatch who's a bit of a wild card and is kind of a bully and very masculine and has modeled himself like an old-fashioned cowboy and he's a sort of expert rancher uh and there's a wedge put between them when jesse plemons's character marries a sort of lower class widow played by Kirsten Dunst and uh, her teenage son is introduced onto the scene and he's nothing like what you know the model of the Montana rancher should be and there you know tensions rise from there I guess I would say yeah I mean he seemed you couldn't design someone (laughs) that would kind of fit in worse there Um, he's yeah uh, that the son is just this kind of waxen pallor um, I guess he's technically studying, I don't know, anatomy or, or medicine or something like that. Uh, so when everyone is out, I don't know, hog-tying calves or something, he's looking for skulls and, or something, that sort of thing. And 
it's very curious how the story kind of uncoils from there. Um, I mean, Jesse Plemons as the the brother of the Benedict Cumberbatch character, um, he actually disappears for part of the film. Um, so there's this kind of like incubation period of where tensions are just simmering and, and rising while he's gone from the ranch that he runs with his brother. And, you know, in that period, you kind of make discoveries uh, about the people involved. And I'll kind of, not that those discoveries are not somewhat telegraphed, I would say, um, but I think the way the movie develops them is, is interesting. So I, w- I wonder if you could talk a bit about um, the masculinity idea and, and what makes it so effective for you. I think one of the things is actually the thing that I think has been the cause of some debate, which is Benedict Cumberbatch and his performance and his casting. He's presented from the beginning as a kind of salt-of-the-earth um, cowboy guy that he has a team of ranch hands that kind of admire him almost like a cult-like thing like it's it's he's really sort of charismatic uh, and then we discover I guess halfway through the film that he's uh, actually went to, I can't remember whether it's Harvard some Ivy League school he studied the classics and now and you know knowing Benedict Cumberbatch knowing how posh he is knowing that upper crust English thing that he has the limitations of our knowledge of him as a as an actor it's sort of like it's a performance of a performance, which makes perfect sense, you know. And I think that's really clever casting on Campion's part because I think it immediately raises your eyebrows when you're like him as a cowboy. And then when you watch the film, it's like, oh, okay, we're not supposed to totally believe that this guy is, is to- like legit. He's, play- he's playing at something. And I think Campion's actually kind of using his weaknesses as an actor, you know, in a really smart way, I guess I would say. So that's part of it. But also like the the relationship that then starts to unfurl between him and the teenage son character, he's really bullying him and he really seems like the bad guy through most of the film. Uh, And then it kind of quite subtly like switches your identification and your, your sense of, you know, your empathy because the young boy is actually, even though he looks quite harmless and if he, he's capable of his own kinds of, um, of nastiness. Yeah, and, and, and connivance, and um, he, he's, I don't know, one of these watcher children, <laughs> in a way. He's creepy, he's creepy. Um, so, yeah, he's not as ready or accustomed to be bullied as, as you might expect from the way that the story is unfolding. And I was just jotting down now to remind myself, because hearing you talk about Benedict Cumberbatch is really interesting, because his performance of that cowboy character, I mean, coming to it, I'm no great lover of him as an actor, so maybe I was primed to think of it as a kind of impersonation in a way. But I suddenly realized halfway through the film, I mean, I'd be damned if I didn't think he was somehow impersonating Lee Marvin's voice. It just seems so precise and exact because he's doing his voice in a somewhat different register than he usually does. And I thought, you know, if I were him, <laughs> if I were going to pick some American actor and I wanted to go full, full American, mm. um, that's... So I don't know, I couldn't get that in my head. And that was an interesting way to think about it um, as you kind of, um, you know, learn more about the different levels of, I don't know, just kind of barriers he has up against the world um, that you don't really learn until the movie goes goes along. I think just like the latent sort of the suggestion of his... You know, I say suggestion, it's more than a suggestion. It's, pr- it's, pretty, um, it's made pretty clear that 
<laughs> that, that he's repressed and he's gay and that he has created this kind of myth around himself mm-hmm. in order to combat that. Uh, and, that, you know, he's never around women. He's threatened by f- the feminine energy that Kirsten Dunst brings mm-hmm. into the family home with mm-hmm. her piano. He's literally kind of retreating to the corners of the house and like sort of framed more on the edge of, of things. Like he feels like he's in the periphery. He's already in the periphery because his the rest of his family dresses like wealthy people in the 1920s dress. And he right. dresses like a cowboy from an old sort of an olden time. Um, yeah. And this pushes him even further. He's so deeply threatened by her mere existence, even though she's kind of like a, like a little dormouse. She, you know, she's she arrives on the scene. She's very polite. You know? Yeah. I, I want to ask you about her, her character, Chris, Kristen Dunst's character. I mean, I didn't know what to make make of her because she is quickly so damaged and deteriorated, you know, and feeling inferior to, to where she is, you know, and also just going mad. I mean, I'm, you know, it's a wonder that more people don't just go mad in that kind of pioneer situation. I don't know. It almost seems like they shut her away a little too, too quickly or uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's the question of what happens when you spend your life worried and focused on your just mere subsistence and then suddenly you don't have that. And that, that scene which, you know, she continually seems to be congregating with with this with the help basically and she's in the kitchen and so there's that sense that you know she's her nerves are frying because she's got too much time to think and then there you have this bullying brother-in-law that is always threatening to humiliate her or is humiliating her or is kind of antagonizing her and yeah you do get the sense that that eventually just tips over into rebellion on her part whatever rebellion looks like which in the end isn't you know, is through booze and self-immolation in a way. But. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, she is tormented by by Cumberbatch's character, and um, that's yeah, that's that's part part of it. And also, she's almost I won't say suffocated, but just overwhelmed by the a- adoration of uh, Jesse Plemons' character, which seems to be in itself a kind of pressure. She feels she doesn't deserve somehow, and she's even nervous about having the piano because she feels like she doesn't play it well enough. Um, and there's like a I don't know, maybe something about stage fright is particularly terrifying, but terrifying scene where they have like the mayor over and she can't play. But yeah, I just want to take a moment just to talk about the, the kind of filmmaking and anything you want, you wanted to talk about there. You know, obviously it's always hard to kind of break into the vocabulary of, of the West. Uh, what would you make of how the Campion and Ari Wegner, the cinematographer, how, how they put the film together? I think it's it's just gorgeously atmospheric. It's quite, I mean, I would say it's quite classical in a lot of ways. It's tapping into the, as you say, the kind of Western myth. There's one shot in particular towards the end with, without kind of saying too much where the, the teenage boy, the actor's name escapes me, uh, Cody something. Sorry, Cody. Uh, great performance. Shout out to Cody. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's sort of looking through a large windows partition of the, the, the house out at Benedict Cumberbatch's character who's standing out in the dirt offering him a, uh, a lasso, I think, or a oh, yeah. bit of rope. And that is like the sense of his being kind of physically distanced, physically and emotionally and every, in every other way, psychologically distanced from a life that he perhaps thought for a while he was going to try and and you know become a part of and that you know the the relationship between the two of them is interesting because it, to me it's a you know maybe an allegory of some kind about the relationship between two different kinds of warring uh 
manhood or masculinities where one it seems um, self-effacing and not at all the type but the urge and the insecurity of not being that traditional man as the Benedict Cumberbatch character is actually is perhaps more corrosive and that the people that you immediately assume say the, the, the macho people that have a lot of bravado are actually maybe not the ones that you need to watch out for the most toxic characters I don't know that's what I took from it yeah that is interesting because they especially since they they set up uh, Cumberbatch's character as being this being kind of villain because of how he, he torments um, Kristen Dunst and lords kind of lords it over at the ranch yeah and he's certainly a bastard like there's no <laughs> way around it but I do think by the, by the conclusion right. you, you start to feel a little bit differently and I think that's really masterful on her part yeah yeah well, I thought we could talk about uh, one one more film, uh, and not for lack of more things to say about the campion. I mean, I'm, there's definitely more we could talk about in terms of where it fits into her 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 career uh, um, and, and the film she's made. Um, but I, I do want to make sure we talk about the lost daughter, um, which in a weird way I feel like um, not has gotten as much attention as other as other things. And I don't know why, because I actually uh, I guess I really liked it, even though there are imperfections in like how it's structured, basically. So The Lost Daughter is uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, uh, and it's an adaptation of a Elena Ferrante novel about a 40-something British academic who goes to a kind of secluded beach holiday in Greece and finds that she's increasingly being kind of drawn into the domestic drama of this obnoxious, large American family that so comes to the drama. beach. So much drama. Yes, so much drama. Um, And every scene between, you know, the American family and the Olivia Colman character plays the British academic uh, is just kind of loaded with like layers of passive aggressive like (laughs) energy and then like by turn sort of warmth. Um, So she becomes kind of fascinated by this one family on the beach, particularly or one part of the family, which is Dakota Johnson as his young mother of like a ton of toddler daughter. And... At one point, this little girl loses her doll, and she will, cannot be kind of soothed. She's just hysterical after she loses this doll, and Olivia Coleman finds it because, as we learn, her quite complex history with her own with her own children, with her own daughters, that she actually decides to keep the doll, which is yeah, like a weird, <laughs> yeah. weird fucking thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is strange gesture, and it's something. I mean, I don't know. Everyone behaves poorly, but because at first she presents as this kind of hyper-rational, you know, university professor who's noting up her copy of, you know, Dante's Paradiso at the beachside and, and getting annoyed that someone's tried to give her birthday cake because she's still annoyed about... I mean, there just ends up being this cycle uh, between her and the family, and that's this thing she clings to. And I'm kind of glad that they don't really try to make much of the doll as a metaphor about her child. It just is a weird thing she's doing. But the flashbacks, or I don't know what you want to call them, because it's almost just this parallel train of consciousness... Again, I mean, I don't know, it almost makes me think of uh, Last Night in Soho just in the way of how tightly it's interwoven in, in The Lost Daughter. The, these kind of flashback sequences to her as a young mother um, played by... Jessie Buckley? Yeah, she's excellent. Who, yeah, who, who, yeah, who is excellent and is just dealing with having two young daughters while trying to make her academic career, which is already a nightmarish prospect, especially for a woman. Uh, you know, she has a clearly a professor mentor who is you know, is happy to have her tag along to conferences. Um, So professionally, she's trying to carve out her space. So you're constantly aware of what she wanted to be and where she is and what she felt she could do away with. And there are things you learn about her as as, as a mother and, and decisions she made that at a certain point you find 
hard to fault her for uh, because it's just about existing. <laughs> it's like a full person at a certain point. And I just liked it as a movie that showed someone making these decisions and not really trying to neaten it up. And I felt that Olivia Coleman was in the, almost in the same way that Kristen Stewart was good in Spencer, although we shouldn't talk about Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> but, I know, I agree. I think yeah. for the most part, I think she's very good in Spencer. Yeah, just in the sense that both those directors cast actors who kind of fill in all the gradations of, 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 of between emotions. I mean, are both, they kind of put themselves out there. They're not afraid to be indecisive on screen. Um, I, I mean, I guess I already, I'm totally in the tank for Olivia Coleman, no matter what she does. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She, and she's got this kind of like, I don't know, this sort of, slightly defeated round-shouldered quality that in it, as she's walking around and then these kind of very that, that like uh, something about her physicality here that's really I think like smart and not overdone at all um speaking of Spencer <laughs> and um yeah and she she's she gives some something which is quite prickly but mm-hmm. kind of understandably prickly as you move on and I think the film doesn't really does not judge her for what I think some people would think of as being, you know, quote unquote, bad motherhood. Yeah. Uh, and I think in a way it's one of the last taboos because I feel like I don't see that many films about women who behave like this, who get, you know, kind of equal opportunity assholes as, you know, fathers can be with, with young children. Yeah. I really like that about it. And also how, and how like, even when kids are lovely and they're just being kids and they're not really necessarily doing anything that bad, you know, just refusing to let go of your shoulders or something mm-hmm. as, you know, the, like Dakota Johnson's little girl does. It just seems to be like a very deep and nuanced understanding of how you can love a child to death and it will still drive you insane. They will, they will <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, whatever, what's the, there's the Philip Larkin line, your, whatever it is, your mom and dad, they fuck you up or something. Mm-hmm. But I, it feels like it's the other way around as well, to a certain extent, in terms of just um, draining your your energies, um, uh, and and that's an interesting like identification that uh, Dakota Johnson's and Olivia Coleman's character have. Some people are sort of down on Dakota Johnson as an actor. I'm I'm not really, and especially here, something about the way she is just sort of peering at Olivia Coleman and recognizing something in in, in her, but not quite able to make the connection or venture the connection because of where she's she's coming from i thought that was really um, effective and i totally agree about you know what you're saying about coleman's like physicality and her self-deprecation i mean she is like a mozart of (laughs) self-deprecation you know and i think part of it comes a little i always like to attribute a little to her background in comedy because she was also like often a straight person in in the Mm -hmm. comedy she did timing in the timing exactly and that goes so far in a lot of these finely tuned scenes with, um, I don't know, Ed Harris has a weird role as a caretaker in it. Yes, I really like that, the, the, like, especially for a first-time filmmaker, there's something very sophisticated about the way she kind of deploys different narrative mm-hmm. elements and different, you know, kind of a cast of, of characters, supporting characters, because there's always a sense that you just don't really know. Well, I haven't mm-hmm. read the novel, so d- don't really know where it's going. Yeah. Um, like, is she going to have a holiday fling with a younger guy played right. by Paul Mescal, who's very appealing? Hmm. Or we're going to turn that on its head a little bit from that expectation. And then we get a sense of her, without her ever having to say anything, yeah. a sense of her being conscious of being a, you know, a 40-something-year-old woman and you know, saying about Dakota Johnson about how beautiful she is. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, there, there's that little kind of t- 
tinge of her having to cope with aging and her having to yeah. co- and her coping with still very much being a sexual being and and also like Gyllenhaal films her in a way where like she films mm-hmm. her when she's swimming like kind of the sensuality of the body and how it feels to be on the beach when it's nice mm-hmm. out and like there is that sense that you know, Gyllenhaal's very good at this because she's always ha- been interested in as an actor she's always been interested in roles which are kind of sexually progressive for women yeah and I mean one of the things I, I, I wanted to touch on was just I mean, speaking of Yellen Hall's direction and, you know, presumably how she chose <laughs> to, to put the movie together, I think she's, she's sort of going for a kind of, I don't know, Claire Denise sort of flow to it. Um, and I, I only thought of that probably because of who actually did the music. I don't know, but I yeah. remember thinking the score was really good. So. Yeah, <laughs> Tinder Sticks. Okay. So same guy who did the Denise right. things. And I, and I actually think it's almost the same melody as the credit song in uh, Trouble Every Day. Anyway, so that somehow I think primed me to how she was shifting very fluidly and sometimes even with the barest of glimpses, you know, she'll have just like a fragment of, of, a, of a scene from the flashback. Um, I called a flashback. It's, you can't even call that because they're, they're kind of on parallel tracks. Yeah, and there's like these little slippages as well with the editing yeah. and the sound with like conversations, which I really liked. I thought it was like, just like, I think, it, like I say, I just found it really sophisticated for a first-time filmmaker, um, beca- it, like so accomplished and like kind of thought out in terms of how information was withheld um and Mm. it didn't feel like the central mystery didn't feel like it was being over egged and it wasn't very predictable i don't think i think it it was just like this knowledge that we know olivia coleman's living with about what you know what is the source of this kind of wound that she has with her mother with with as being a mother and the way it withholds and then gives that information i think is pretty well done yeah and i mean i start off by saying that has its imperfections and i guess the main thing is that these parallel tracks, uh, they end up feeling like tracks to a certain point. I mean, they, I, it really doesn't quite solve the problem of switching between these two. And, ah, okay. and you know, that was kind of what I felt by the, by the end, even though I don't really think it does compromise by the end, which is pretty impressive given all the pressures that could be on you when you're adapting a book like this. Mm. Um, so I appreciate that. But yeah, there was just something that wasn't totally worked out. I don't know. I just saw one of those festival ratings where it was rated lower than official competition. I'm going to fight everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I I was perplexed by that. You know, it was in the twos where other movies were in the threes. And I don't lend too much weight to that. But it just in terms of people's perception, I was kind of disappointed in that. But, you know, this is this is another parallel mother's story, I guess, except it's the same woman. But, uh, you know, two two parallel tracks. I Um, saw someone tweet that they could have separate names, like they could switch their names and they would still work, which is sort of true. That is true, yeah. Well, I think maybe we can talk just really quickly about one other movie. I don't know. I guess we could talk about Hand of God just quickly because I think uh, that's maybe a movie a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, (laughs) it's Paolo Sorrentino's autobiographical story and I'm not going to take it too seriously. I actually found it pretty entertaining. I found like when he was just going sort of full comedic mode and can be very broad. It was very effective. It's very funny. But he's funny. It's funny. <laughs> it is funny, crucially. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> mixed on Sorrentino. I've hated some of his films. Uh, I did really like The Great Beauty. So, I mean, I so many things about this film. So, I think the first half is really lovely. It's such a lovely evocation of mm-hmm. its time and place, its humor. It doesn't try. It's quite rough and, you know, like, it's not it's 80s Naples it's not gonna be PC yep okay I do have some issues with the like it's a little fat phobic some of the jokes are a little fat phobic I think also you know he he's definitely as he's made abundantly clear owes a lot to Fellini and 
And some of the Fellini tropes, I think, are quite try-hard here. Um, the, you know, the Fellini and fools, the big-breasted women, uh, you know, all of it. Like, some of it lands, some of it doesn't. And yeah. when it doesn't, it does clang for me. Yeah, I, I was sort of shocked by his, his aunt. I mean, I just <laughs> I couldn't believe they just kept going on with it. Yeah, and then, like, the sexy, out-of-control woman, then it goes insane. Yeah, I mean, it's full of, it's littered with things that are, like, really retrograde as far as women are concerned. Um, Although, I guess, technically could have happened at the time in the sense that if if you were outspoken, you were, quote-unquote, crazy or something, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it's such a, it's such a patriarchal set up there and yeah. um, but I think it tra- I mean I think it's realistic about the context of the time you know and I do think I like the young actor who um, plays sort of fictionalized what's his name they call him Fabietto oh, yeah, like, or that's right yeah, yeah it's his um, I think I think he's I think he's lovely he's got a really lovely kind of callow innocent presence um, well innocent up to a point until the <laughs> horrifically uncomfortable sex scene in the film which I won't Oh, wow. About. Yeah. Uh, I almost wonder if we should spoil that just to warn people. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know. Just, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah. So the second half for me just, just starts. To, it just it felt it felt long. It started to feel very long. I was sure it was going to be an hour later when I came out of the screening. I thought it was like running into three hours and it wasn't. <laughs> That's not a good sign, especially when the first half was so nice. I yeah, don't. it's true. I mean. And and just to clarify, like the, the kind of uh, unsettling s- sex scene, I think is, I don't know, largely so also because again, it's the retrograde kind of politics of it that this person seems to exist just as another stop on his like maturation, uh, you know, his growing up, uh, which is, yeah, doesn't sit so so terribly well. But yeah, I mean, it's I, I had to admire something about the movie because, I guess Suspiria, which didn't really land well for most people was an amazon you know supported production this is a netflix one and i kind of like that he just sort of went for totally like his own story you know which i didn't realize how exactly it tallied with his own like tragic parental tale yeah i was not actually uh aware of it until my husband who's into to football i guess must have looked uh, like read about it and was like yeah do you know what happened in Sorrentino's life and, and told me. And I, so I had, I braced myself somewhat while watching the film, but it was still, I mean, it really made me weep. Even when I wasn't totally sold, like by the second half, the relationship between him and his brother still made me feel very emotional. It was probably my most, my, my mask was soaking wet. It was really yeah. Like, yeah. It was a lot. Um, yeah. But the Tony Servillo as well, he's so good. He's so good as the dad. Yeah. And I think, and the parental relationship is, is sort of beyond just like, vague you know parents they, they actually he actually builds out a relationship there which is impressive i think we're probably going to wrap up there because we have movies to run off to but that was hand of god the paolo sorrentino which will be on netflix at some point um because venice shows netflix films so <laughs> that's that's a benefit for uh, listeners but i just want to thank christina very much for taking the time to come on the podcast um, thank you for having me and where i like to always direct listeners where they can read uh, reports you're writing uh, so i guess i just d- direct people being a freelancer and being all over the place i direct people to my twitter yes which yes. is uh christina lefou <laughs> after the you know when you make twitter accounts in 2009 that's what happens <laughs> um <laughs> and i guess you'll you just had you kind of hit the jackpot recently with a clip of uh oh my god <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, tweeted a clip, a slow motion clip of Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac on the red carpet where he was leaning over to her, looking at her intently and then kissing her on the inside of her arm. 
and it just it was like like a hundred thousand retweets. People are very horny. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean that was an extraordinary. I mean for the stage managed appearances, that was pretty extraordinary. I thought it was very. To be fair, it was very sexy. I'm, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. That's ultimately Venice is about the movies, but the little bit of the glamour and the movie sure. star stuff is great. Yeah, I'm glad we managed to like drop that in, since uh, otherwise you just think we're dryly, you know, watching dryly commentating on movies. But there is red carpet uh, glamour, so thank you for bringing that. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with another episode soon. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 